0: Today, on episode number 239 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Michelle Pekansky-Brock shares how to become an authentic online teacher. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I am welcoming to the show Dr. Michelle Pekansky Brock. She's a noted leader in higher education with expertise in online teaching, course design, and professional development. Michelle's work has helped online instructors across the nation and beyond understand how to craft relevant, humanized online learning experiences that support the diverse needs of college students. Michelle is the author of Best Practices for Teaching with Emerging Technologies, has received national recognition for her excellence in teaching, and has held various leadership roles with the Online Learning Consortium. Currently, Michelle is faculty mentor, digital innovation, with the California Community College System. She coordinates equitable professional development programs to support faculty and staff to learn and grow without the requirement of being on campus. As part of the California Virtual Campus Online Education Initiative, online network of educators, her work contributes to supporting 114 colleges, 90,000 faculty and staff, and 2.1 million students. Learn more about Michelle at Brokansky.com and connect with her on Twitter at Brokansky. Michelle, welcome to Teaching in Higher
1: Ed. Hey there, Bonnie. Thanks for having me.
0: This might seem like an overreach, but I feel like I'm talking to an old friend, even though we've only met once in person, but I just feel this kinship with you connecting first through Twitter. It's funny because I don't even think of your last name as your last name. I think of you as Brokansky. (laughs) that's, That's where my brain starts, and then I have to back into your real last name before I actually get there
1: says a lot about the power of having a digital identity and I feel I feel a kinship with you too when I saw you present in person for the first time I I could feel what you were going through I mean I think we had a conversation right afterwards where you were saying you know I I I need a minute you know like you were saying you were so emotionally drained and I just I think we have a connection in that way that we give a lot to what we share. And we also have last names that are really hard to pronounce. <laughs> we
0: do. We have that. We have that. Someone who is your friend kept saying, you two are so similar. It was it was fun to connect in person and then also oh, to true. just have the so much empathy, I think, for what we try to do, such a sense of significance in the work that we do. But yeah, it does take a lot. Mm-hmm. I usually I try to have a few minutes by myself before I ever start to speak. And then afterward, I'm just I feel like a mess. I want it, to, to go hide. But it's usually rude to go hide. But that is that is my general desire. But I, I usually overcome it because it's considered rude. <laughs> Run away to the bathroom. Or something.
1: I totally get that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I we wanted to sort of do a little look back in time. And we're going to be exploring what it takes to become an authentic online teacher. But I know first we want to look at some of the things that get in the way. And I, I know for you, this is tied to your history and teaching online as well. You want to take us back?
1: Yeah. So I started teaching full time in 2002 at a community college. And then around 2003, I taught my first online class. And I had this vision that it was going to make my life easier, you know, because I had an infant and a toddler and I thought, oh, that sounds so wonderful teaching a class online. And I had always been very intrigued and engaged in technology. I grew up in Silicon Valley. My dad he had a home office when I was a kid and I would hear the squelch of the modem at night, you know, so I he worked on a mainframe and So technology has always been a part of my life, but I was teaching art appreciation and art history courses. And so I jumped into the opportunity to teach art appreciation online. And I did take a training program at my college at the time that really was more about, you know, kind of using the LMS and that sort of thing. And when I got that shell, that empty shell, which is, you know, looking back on it, it it was such a harrowing experience. Because all I could think was, what do I do with this thing? And how do I create something for my students to be sure that my students are going to learn? And ultimately, what I was doing was I was teaching in a learning management system, which at the time was Blackboard, with no images. I mean, this was back before Google. This was back before digital images kind of had evolved. And I would do something like I was using discussions to foster student-student interaction. So you think, oh, you were doing it right. But my discussions looked like I would tell my students to take out their book, right, their $110 book that they were expected to buy, open it to page whatever, look at this image, then come back to the discussion and answer this question. Now, if you think about the way learning happens in a, in an art history, like classroom, you've got the image at the center of the room, the room is dark, and it's all about looking and talking. So when you're having really meaningful interactions in a classroom, it's all anchored around the image and mm. engaging with the image. So what I was doing I knew was ridiculous, but I wanted to ignore that. I really wanted to just push that down and not recognize it. And I think that that's one of the things that really gets in the way with becoming an authentic online teacher is that it really kind of comes back to this simple thing that we like to forget that we are human beings. We are we are people and people by nature don't like to recognize our faults. We don't like to kind of dig into that messy stuff. And especially when we're in this academic arena, we're supposed to be the holders of, of knowledge knowledge. And then, in addition to that, you know, online teaching is different because I had never seen an online class. I had never had, you know, a great online teacher. I didn't know what that looked like and I didn't know how to become that myself. So, those are, I think, the things that really got in the way. I mean, the technology is a barrier, but there's so much more than that. There's so much more about our own kind of um, the stories that we hold in our mind and, you know, the way we pivot and navigate and, Just kind of this fear of of going to an unknown place and risking emotional exposure or becoming vulnerable, taking a risk. So those are the things that for me really got in the way.
0: Take us to 2006, to an experience that changed everything.
1: (laughs) Yes, 2006 was a very formative year for me. And it took me a long time to really reflect on it and understand it. And I think I still am doing that. But in 2006, I had a major open heart surgery. I was 34 at the time. And I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a very supportive husband. And I did not expect to have open heart surgery that year. I'll stay out of that whole story. (laughs) But really what happened was my surgery was in January. And so I took a whole semester off of teaching, a whole semester off, which was a huge privilege looking back because what it really forced me to do was to get out of my day-to-day, very, 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 very busy life of managing, teaching, being a mom. You know, there was, I'm sure you get that money, you know, there's not <laughs> much room for, for much else. And so, you know, I was forced to just lay down and not do anything. And then as I started being able to to come back a little bit and become physically active and move around, I found myself engaging with these new things out there called podcasts. This was the first podcast wave. We're kind of in like the second podcast wave now, or maybe the third, but the first time I'd ever heard of what a podcast was, it was the first time I'd ever heard of what a blog was. We're still talking pre Facebook. We're still talking pre YouTube. But just this idea that I could be in my house and listen to conversations between other people, other educators. And most of them at that time were K 12. There were K 12 teachers that were doing some really amazing creative things. And also using these new technologies that were coming out, using blogs in their teaching, using podcasts in their teaching. And that to me just, it sparked something in me. And it really made me go to this very reflective place with my teaching and try to lay that on top of what I was doing. And I can remember a couple of other takeaways. After that experience, I remember sitting in my office with a student who had earbuds. This is before iPhones, but when iPods were popular, you know, that's when we started seeing like an earbud in the ear while people are talking. And it was such a disturbance to me initially. Like I would think, oh, how rude, you know, what is this person doing? And then I remember thinking, ooh, you know, that could be, that could be me that they're listening to. And so I started to kind of contextualize those things differently. And that's also when I found a blog post written by an art historian named Beth Harris, who's done amazing things with her work. Um, she, she was a, one of the, the co-creators of Smart History, and now she's part of the Khan Academy. But she wrote a blog post about this tool called VoiceThread. And I remember reading that blog post and looking at this tool called VoiceThread, and it's a visually centric online mm-hmm. environment. You upload an image or any kind of media and you have conversations around it and you can use your mouse to draw on the image and i'm thinking you know my mind was blown that was that was the online art history piece that i had been missing and so i started using that in my classes and it it changed everything it changed more than i expected it to change but so as i as i peel away the layers of what i just shared i think having that time to reflect which i don't i and i mean i know that most educators don't have that time it's a real privilege it's being able to find faculty or other educators who share and see what they're doing or listen to what they're doing which is what I think your podcast is so great for and also experimenting and trying new things and doing continuous surveys with my students check-ins how did this go? Or how was, how was this experience? Just very open-ended questions and seeing what comes to the surface. I learned so much. And I, I think everything after that that I did in my teaching was always guided by my student feedback. And so I began to understand that my student feedback was critical to me becoming authentic. And I think that's another barrier that a lot of educators have is they kind of get afraid that well, if I, if I ask them that, it's, it's going to be all bad stuff that I'm going to learn. And I, mm. it's, I mean, there will be some of it. And by human nature, we remember the bad stuff more than the good stuff. But there's such a, a rich array of data that the students can share with us if we let them in.
0: You couldn't have predicted this, but your story was very healing to me from a recent experience that I had. I had been asked by the Chronicle to share about an experience that really transformed my teaching, and I went with the authentic answer, which I share in the article that they posted well, by now it'll be months have, will have passed by the time this airs. But I shared about becoming pregnant in my early 40s and it was a high risk pregnancy and there had been losses along the way and, and lots of hardships. And so it was, I better be really aware of my body and how I'm carrying it and literally carrying the child. But but then what? when was the last time I ate? Am I breathing? Am I, you know, how am I sitting and carrying myself? And it mellowed me out. It's hard to explain to people but who, ha- who haven't had a similar experience, but it really just completely made me more empathetic. I think it just, everything is not about my class. It's not everyone and everything is not going to be on 100%. It's just, that is not a kind of energy that any class. Any professor should ever expect themselves to sustain, let alone other people who have so many other things going on in their complex lives. But I was horrified when the story went out, because there's all these other amazing educators. And I'm just totally intimidated by my picture being up there with these, you know, greats that are famous worldwide. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, gosh, they all told stories about students that had changed their lives. And I was like, I hope I don't sound like a narcissist. But I mean, as you're telling the story things that happen very personal in our lives really can change our teaching. I just felt better. Like it doesn't have to be a story about I mean, tons and tons and tons of students have of course changed my life, but that really is the thing that just transformed the way that I teach even including today. And I think it helps me.
1: I'm sure your story touched so many people know that that's so important, but yeah, thanks for sharing that with me. I think that gets in the way of our teaching too, because we know that it's all about connection
0: mm-hmm. in the classroom.
1: Yeah. So whether you're teaching in the classroom or or online, it's about connection. It's about human connection. And if you were to share that story with your students, they would connect with you because they'd see you as a real person. Oh yeah, and, and they did. Op- they did. Yeah. 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 And oftentimes, as educators, as 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 instructors, professors, teachers, whatever we want to call ourselves we think we have to shut that out. We think we have to be professional. And there's a difference between personal and private. And when we open up some of the personal, you know, let our students into some of the personal parts of our our life and our experience, it just helps them to understand that you're a person just like they are. We're all just people. That's all we are.
0: There's also the whole what i just envision as completely downshifting you know you've been like going 80 miles an hour on the freeway and all of a sudden you're in first gear and you're kind of not used to this you know but because in with your surgery you, i mean you're literally lay down you know heal rest and that was not what your life looked like before that and i think it helps us carve out spaces i'm not Tremendously great at it, but I do treasure the importance of that carving out. Uh, One of the books that's been recommended on the show before is The Slow Professor. A couple of people have recommended, I have those authors on, but just that whole idea of slowing ourselves down, giving ourselves time for reflection, and that that's great modeling to do for our students. We know how important metacognition is for them. Why do we not think it's important for us?
1: Completely. Yeah. And that's what my practice now is yoga and Pilates. That's Mm. my. And when I don't do it, I, like the month before where we are now was all travel. I mean, I traveled so much and I I can feel it inside me now that I need to get back to that. And it is, it's a practice and it's hard to make time for that. So yeah, I totally, I completely agree.
0: Well, let's spend some, a few minutes then talking a little bit about then the things that help. You've shared a little bit about that, but let's go a little deeper into the kinds of things that help us become more authentic as an online teacher?
1: Yeah, I think I would, in addition to the things that I just said, I want to just connect with some of the work that I'm doing now. I've transitioned professionally into a faculty or a professional development role, which I really, really enjoy. And it took me a long time to kind of, I felt guilt for like not teaching and I, I not that I won't ever teach again, but you know, I, I really do feel like I'm in a good place now. And looking back at what has helped me, I carry that into my work now. So the team that I work on, it's an amazing team and we support professional development across all 114 California community colleges, which is 60,000 faculty and about 30,000 staff and administrators. And so what we try to do is create, Ways the, those water cooler moments, you know, but that are so powerful when, when two people come together and and share something that they're doing, we are now creating online spaces for that to happen like blogs we have a blog that we have we invite faculty and staff to just share their share what they're doing on the blog either through writing or through a video or i will meet up with instructors in zoom and just record like a 10 minute video of them talking about one thing they're doing in their class and then the screen share because we need to see those classes we need and, We need to see what they look like. And those are the things that I think really, really help a lot. It's just creating opportunities and places and environments for faculty to to share and show what they're doing.
0: So many of institutions I'm aware of have it where at their in-person classes, they might have a week where you're invited to sign up to sit in some of these great educators classes, but we see less of that in the online environment, probably because it's newer. But I was laughing when you shared that with me earlier, because I have a series it's not three, three videos so far, but you got to start somewhere. But it's show us your course and kind of treat it like a little behind the scenes tour. But that really, when we moved over to Canvas as a new learning management system a couple of years back, how else are you going to figure out what those course shells should look like? And at the time we were so myself very much included. Interested in the pretty ones, and you know then you have to well, are you really going to learn div codes and responsive things and it's like, well, we're actually finding out more. It's more about the usability than it is the how pretty does it look and and one quick thing about Canvas, by the way, they really figured out on Canvas through a bunch of research they did that the students are just paying all attention to whatever's on their homepage, myself very much included would be like designing this amazing course with all these things you could walk through week by week. And they're never seeing that stuff. They see what's on their homepage. They see what's due across all their courses. And so I teach both in Blackboard and in Canvas. And I I now just take the learning from what both of these organizations are learning about Effective teaching, and I really have now just gotten everything to how can I break this down into a small enough component that someone could do this in a small enough period of time? But you know, so don't break it down too much not a five minute thing, but like a 15 or 20 minute thing, and then have enough of that showing up on their home page that they'll do something about it. And Canvas, by the way, just completely transformed their home page too, where we can even just add to dos to students. Homepage things. I'm not, I'm sorry. so I'm, I'm laughing so hard. Sorry, Canvas, and that I'm not using very good vocabulary for your product, but I don't even have to know what it's called. I just know, hey, I want them to watch this video. So I'm going to add this to their to do list. And in Blackboard, if I don't have that, I'm going to make the same thing where it's like a to do so they yeah. can check and make sure they know what they need to do.
1: Yeah, one of the the courses that my team offers because we also have four four week online courses and we're moving towards some one week online courses also and they're offered at a very low cost but one of them is called humanizing online teaching and learning which is the course that 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 I designed and take so much of it comes from my own experiences and my own teaching. But now it's being facilitated by my peers. And it's it's a really beautiful thing to see how they adapt it. And so we've got these videos, this really short video on the homepage. It's it's co-taught by two facilitators and they'll come together and record separately, you know, different parts of California. But they'll merge them together in one video. So it's Mm. these two heads and they're pretending to look at each other as the other one's talking.
0: I love that. And it
1: basically just says, welcome to our class. And they say it in unison and then they tell the the participants where to click to get started. And it's just like that. I love that. Super quick, you know, educators really think about using video in that way. It's like videos are hour long lectures. So we need to unpack that. And by modeling those things and, Feeling how they help us, how they do help us feel more comfortable and kind of ease that that anxiety that one feels entering a class can be really powerful.
0: You just totally sparked my creativity and it came from me making a mistake. So I was filming, I've been filming some panels on culturally responsive teaching with my colleagues and I did it the first time and the video turned out great. And in Zoom, which is what Michelle and I are talking on today and also what I recorded these videos on, it's will know who's talking. And so it's like having a two camera shoot, but you're not shooting with any cameras besides webcams. And so the most recent person who's talking is gets big on the screen. And I can see everybody else up at the top, but that doesn't get filmed. So I'm not I see it while we're recording, but the the, the video doesn't turn out that way. So then the next time I went to record, and I said, Oh, yeah, I know that you all can see each other, but it doesn't show up that way. It'll just be the big." video. And lo and behold, if you don't have your speaker view set the correct way, when you go to record in Zoom, it's going to record like Brady Bunch style. That's a Doug McKee reference who talks about that as the Brady Bunch. And if you don't know what Brady Bunch is, we got to really get you back to some good <laughs> 1970s television watching. But I love this, the two heads pretending they're looking at each other. But then I was like, wow, what if we got nine people <laughs> on <the> Zoom? <laughs> and had Because you really could do that if you... <laughs> As the recorder, you'd have to tell the person like they'd have to write on a piece of paper where everybody else on the session was, so they'd look at the right person. That you have my creative juices sparked right now. I love that, and
1: I've done that before. Oh, you have with the night. I learned no the the speaker view. Oh yeah, recording not in speaker view. Yeah, I've learned that lesson too. So I totally know what you
0: mean. (laughs) But and I'm all telling them, oh, don't worry, you're not on film right now. (laughs) They totally
1: were. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I think the other thing that the other thing that my team is really recognizing now is how much face-to-face professional development can be a barrier for mm. so many people, mm-hmm. especially especially those who teach part-time. And in our system, we have 60,000 faculty, 60,000 faculty, and 70% of them are part-time. And we know that many of them, I don't know how many, but many of them teach at multiple colleges in our system. So, you know, when there's a there's a workshop on campus, they a probably don't know about it and B even if they did and wanted to be there often aren't able to. And that's true for for full-time faculty also. I don't mean to, you know, leave them out of the equation, but so trying to create opportunities that are untethered, which goes back to my it's a it's a term I started using in my previous role at CSU Channel Islands where I worked before my current role. We are experimenting with free online one-day conferences. And we did one in October of 2018 called Can Innovate. And it was an opportunity to, we create, we put out a call for proposals and basically just accepted folks who wanted to share how they're using Canvas to support student success. And it was a really dynamic day. We had 29 sessions and 19 speakers. Mm. And at the end of the day, we had 1131 people who attended. And on average, they attended like three point something sessions. So just that ability to attend from anywhere about 88% 88% of those folks attended online, and the rest of the attendees joined in from campuses up and down the state in group viewing rooms. And so, trying to foster that culture of learning from anywhere is, I think, a really exciting opportunity. And also, you know, just as a faculty member who wants to learn and grow, knowing that there are lots of different ways to do that other than, you know, a formal gathering on campus. And Twitter is another great way too. I know that you and I both learn a lot through people we connect with on Twitter.
0: I was able to attend, I'm laughing because I think I attended 3.1 sessions, (laughs) but I was able to attend and had someone with me and we actually did it from my home. Then we, you know, we would have a lot less likelihood of having interruptions and it was pretty amazing because I watched it on my iPad, but I put it up on the Apple TV, if that makes sense. Like I projected it up on there. And then it almost made me feel like you were all in our living room. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but just the casualness with it. But I really, it was very, very engaging. The guy, I wish I could remember his name, but he did a session on Canvas has something called Mastery Paths. And it's basically like a way of differentiating the learning. It's one one way you can use this technology is to differentiate where if you didn't do as well and you need some extra review, you could build it in where that person gets extra scaffolding to help them to the next concept versus if someone demonstrated they already have the mastery, they did whatever assessment or quiz or whatever, then they can move on faster. And I'd watched a bunch of sessions and I kept trying to figure it out, and I realized I was trying to jump forward. I was trying to turn it into a choose your own adventure thing before I even just learned the basics of it, but he was so clear, but also just really warm and he had examples, but he didn't jump to them too fast. You know, he set the really big picture first. I just thought he was great. You probably didn't remember his name or yeah, yeah,
1: Mar- Marvin Patton. He's yes. Great. He works at Merced College. Um yeah, so maybe we could put the, the link to his archive.
0: Yeah. And right. I watched a, a bunch of other ones too. And it was just, in fact, I think I did more than three now that I, that I start to think about what a great event, because you mentioned how many people that you support, but I don't think you were counting me and <laughs> the countless people that can go to these for free. I mean, because I didn't pay to go to that session. Right. And I don't, right. I think the one, you've got one coming you want to share about, or are you going to wait until the end to share about that? Or I would love to share about it. Oh, now. yeah.
1: We have this, we have this wonderful keynote speaker. For it <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, on February 28th, 2019, we are hosting CCC, which stands for California Community College, CCC Digital Learning Day. And Digital Learning Day is actually a national event that emerged from K-12. And it's it's very a very cool concept. Basically, it's organic. It's very grassroots. It's like, you know, this is a day where we're going to dig into digital learning and all that it means. And so there's like this global map or a national map of places around the country where events are popping up for digital learning day so we thought well let's let's do it for our system so last year we did it for the first time last February. And it was, it was a big success. And that we built on that for Can Innovate. And so this will be our second annual digital learning day. And we're looking at exploring digital literacies Mm. across the curriculum, which is a really important conversation for us to have. And Bonnie, we are so happy and grateful that you have accepted our invitation to keynote that day. So it'll be good. We're, we're going to be doing some different things this time and kind of focusing, honing in on a couple of different technologies, looking at how they're being used in the classroom and also trying to build in some hands-on time during the day, which mm. is a little bit different. So we'll see how that plays out. I haven't got it all figured out yet, but <laughs> it'll be interesting.
0: <laughs> it's back to that experimentation thing that if you're not willing to iterate, then... I mean, doing the same thing is probably safer, but not going to take you to as unexpected of places as taking those bigger risks can. Exactly.
1: And with digital learning, I think that's baked into it. It's about this curiosity and experimentation. So I do agree. We have to really model that and then see how it goes and learn from it and just move on.
0: I'm thrilled that today's episode is sponsored by Text Expander. The reason why I am is because we only take a small number of sponsors, and it's always because it's a product or service that we are incredibly passionate about. Text expander, as I've mentioned many times on the podcast before, is one of the first things that I install on a new computer and really is just essential to my workflow. It helps save us time in small and big ways. It can shave a few seconds off from me having to remember my work phone number that I never remember, or I just type in a a little, what they call a snippet. So I do, in my case, Z-W-K- phone as in my work phone. The Z is just to have it be a different kind of phrase than one I might accidentally type. And as soon as I press the space bar, automatically there's my work phone number. It can be something of a longer message I send out to all the podcast guests a little bit about the recommendations segment of the show explain what that is and rather than me having to type that fresh every single time I can have more of the interaction that I do with those prospective guests the real rich stuff the stuff that is unique to each one of them and not some logistical aspect of running the show so we're very thankful to text expander for saving us a bunch of time I'm saying we and really it's a a lot. Dave, my husband and I were just loyal users of Text Expander and are so appreciative for their service and what it does for us at saving us time so we can be freed up to spend more time on the good stuff. And if you go to Textexpander.com slash podcast, you can get 20% off your first year and be sure and mention that you heard about Text Expander on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. There's a little drop down for you to do that there. Thanks again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And speaking of the recommendations segment, let's hear a little bit about what Michelle and I have to recommend on today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my recommendation is back to checklists. And I actually have an early episode of Teaching in Higher Ed that was entirely dedicated to checklists. I read the book called The Checklist Manifesto and just was sold from there, which I was going to recommend on today's show and then realized I already had, so I'm not going to break my own rule and recommend something that I already have. But uh, definitely, if you haven't read The Checklist Manifesto, it's worth it. It's a lot more interesting than one might think from the title. At any rate, the, I found a checklist which is specific to Canvas. I promise Canvas is not a sponsor for today, or I would have mentioned it by now. But but they have a wonderful instructional design team and they put together a checklist for the beginning and end of a course. And even if you taught in another learning management system such as Blackboard, I think this is a checklist worth looking at because it's not so specific to Canvas that it wouldn't help you regardless of what learning management system you're using. And one of the things I really like about the tool is that they've got Got a page which I'm linking to in the show notes. They've got a page that talks about the checklist itself and how you might use it. Again, it's for beginning or end of a course. But then to access it, you click on a link and it opens up a blank Google document that you can make a copy of. And then we'll go into your own Google Docs. You could save it there. So it's just a really nice use of template. And you're not going to go back and accidentally save over their template. It's creating a copy if you let it, creating a copy in your Google Docs. I thought that was a clever way of having a tool that really gets used and gets put into my digital system versus their digital system. So anyway, I would definitely suggest checking out this course checklist, again, specific to Canvas, but really could be applicable to any learning management system. And I'll tell you what, make a checklist. And then revise it every time, and your life is so much easier the next time around when a course starts or when it ends. You don't have to have the cognitive load of remembering those things or potentially forgetting them. You've just got your checklist, and you can kind of go into manual drive. Lots of driving references great. on today's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, Michelle, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations.
1: Okay, so I have, I have a whole list in front of me, but I'm going to go with three are kind of tool related and then one's a book. The first tool is Adobe Spark. Bonnie, do you use Adobe Spark?
0: I do not. I just downloaded the app the other day, but I have not even played with it. Okay. This is video, so, yeah?
1: So Adobe Spark has th- it's first of all it's free and it, you can use it on your computer, you can use it on your iPhone and I heard that Android is either coming out or mm. it has come out. I'm not sure yet. But it includes three tools. One is video, one is post and one is page. And they all do something different. They're all kind of in like a storytelling suite of tools. But let me start with the simplest. Post creates social graphics. Mm -hmm. And when I say create social graphics, I mean, it, it connects you with the whole repository of images and templates that so really easily you can create like a beautiful Twitter an image formatted specifically to fit in a Twitter post with mm. like a quote on it or something like that. So really interesting tool that I think you could have students use to share reflections or takeaways or muddiest clear points, those kinds of things. And then actually you create a beautiful web webpage. It's, it's amazing and a drag and drop interface. And then the third one that has really gained a lot of traction in our system is Adobe Spark Video. Mm. And I'm sharing this because humanizing online teaching is so very important, as we talked about. And I found in my work with faculty that they're often very reluctant to show their face and their videos. And Adobe Spark Video allows for you to create a video with your voice, but you pull in images and, and icons to create the story, and so that's an entry point that that really works for a lot of instructors. So check that out. The other one is Name Coach, which is a tool that yeah. I'm sharing because of our kinship with our last names. <laughs> So name coach is a really simple tool, and it's a tool that we have adopted within our system through the online education initiative. And it's it's a very simple way for an instructor or a student to go in and simply record their name. And then it sits in Canvas. It actually sits in their, their profile. So mm. anyone can go and listen to how to say that person's name. So it's, it's a really nice addition to equity. And it also gives students the ability to select their preferred pronoun. So lots of different ways that it supports equity. So check that out. And then my book is a book that I just finished listening to by Brene Brown, who is baked into everything that Mm. I talk about. And her work has been very transformative for me. And her most recent book is called Dare to Lead. And she's looking at her research within the context of organizations. Brene Brown is an effective researcher and she researches shame and vulnerability. And so she's looking at the way that shame and vulnerability impact the way that we lead and the way we kind of normalize it or push it away inside of our organizations through the conversations that we are willing to have can really take us to a more authentic place as a leader. And as I listened to it, I thought about higher education organizations mm. and I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, everybody has to listen to this. So it's it's very powerful.
0: I just added it to my wish list for books I want to read. And I was contemplating that it might be something helpful. We haven't done a lot around leadership development in my institution, specifically for department chairs or deans or that kind of thing. And I sort of think, well, that is my discipline and I probably could, you can't solve all the problems, but I probably could, you know, give a contribution. And I thought that would seem like a good book to start with and just have conversations around and and see where it takes us. So I'm glad you said that.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you'll like it. Yeah. Okay. You know, I have a quote, it's by someone named Alexander Den Denhaijan, and I don't even know who this person mm. is other than he's in the, he's kind of in the self-care space, ah. so which is really important. So that loops back to what we were talking about too. But here's the quote, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. Mm. And I think that applies to us as, you know, people, but it also applies so much to our students. So a lot to think about in that quote.
0: Oh, I love that, and I can't wait to see what Sierra does with that quote graphic. She's the one who does all her quote graphics. She does such an amazing well not quote graphics. I'm sorry the what she does with the recommendations graphics on which a quote will be placed for this one. She's gonna come up with something amazing. I'm sure. no pressure, Sierra. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today and for inviting me to be a part of your event in February I'm excited to join you for that and now hearing more about it I'm even more excited than I already was so thanks for your time today just love any chance I get a chance to learn from you and you've given me a lot to think about and I'm sure everyone listening
1: thanks so much Bonnie have a great day and thanks folks for listening
0: Thanks once again to Michelle Pekansky-Brock for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to go to the show notes to see all the links to the wonderful things that Michelle referenced and recommended in today's episode, go to teachinginhighered.com slash 239. Thanks also, once again, to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode and making our lives easier for those of us that have access to your service. And thanks to all of you for listening. It's great having you as a part of this community. I just love the chance that I get to be in community with people that care so deeply about teaching and serving our students well. Thanks for listening this time, and I'll see you for episode 240 next week. Take care.